Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner. And today we're here to talk with you about again, what is infinite banking? So Bruce, we're on a journey. I don't even want to label how many parts this series is going to have. We are now on part four. We're just walking through the fundamentals of infinite banking. And really the reason we're doing this is to give clarity and bare bones facts and a depthful, if that's a word, understanding of exactly what is infinite banking and what are the components that make up infinite banking because you might be one of two different major buckets of people who's listening either you are interested in infinite banking and you've heard great things that it can do for you and you are very interested in the benefits that it provides in your life and now you're wanting to say how does it actually work or You also might be in a different bucket altogether where maybe you're already using infinite banking. You already have a policy in place. You're five, six, seven years into the policy already. And you're saying, I love how it works and what it's doing for me, but I want to understand it more clearly because it's so profound, the results that it's creating in my life. And I want to continue doing more with infinite banking. And I want to be able to explain it better to especially people who are close and important to me, maybe even children who I hope that I can help them to understand financial principles and stewardship so that they can use the principles and the solid foundation in their financial life, which infinite banking may be a part for them as well. So Bruce, thank you for joining me on this journey. I know that we've unpacked a lot of things so far. Before we dive into where we are in the conversation and where we're going today, Let's just hear your thoughts at the beginning of this conversation here again about what is infinite banking. Well, the, you know, what Nelson would always say is that your need for financing in your life is greater than your need for saving. And so that was a very, you know, I, I, I would challenge people listening to, to actually think about that for a second. So when you, when you add up, People say, you know, to save 10 to 15% of your of your gross income. And but when you add up all of your your financing needs in most households, which would include a mortgage, a car loan, could include student loans, credit card debt, other unsecured debt, so on and so forth. If you just do that, take that, take that amount and divide it by your income that month. You're going to see that it's in most cases, and I've seen it. I've seen it as high as fifty percent. Um, I've seen it obviously as low as as zero percent. But it looks to see. It's, we did this uh, with another uh, practitioner a couple of years ago. It's somewhere around thirty-seven and a half percent, somewhere in that neighborhood of the need for financing. So thirty and a half, thirty-seven and a half percent of your Money is going out towards financing, so that means that that is greater than ten to fifteen percent of savings. So your need to do that. So if you can 
lower that what's going out for financing by X amount, then you don't even have to save anymore because you could have the same amount of money coming in, lower the amount that's going out for financing, and your savings automatically goes up. And so that was the main thing about becoming your own banker is that it, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen by magic. You actually have to make changes in your life. And the first change you, you need to make is you need to save before you spend. And that is the same as a regular bank needs to have capital before they can become a bank. So I actually have a friend who actually started his own bank. And they needed to have $20 million in escrow before the banking charter company of the uh, or banking charter organization of the state would actually even consider their banking charter. And then they all the investors had to be put through the ringer to actually check it. It took it took close to 10 years for them to actually get the bank started. So think about how they now he's actually he's had the bank for about five years and they're flourishing um, mm. going forward. So they delayed gratification. They saved uh, that money all that time to to build up the twenty million dollars from investors, and then they had to keep it in escrow for that time period before they could start the bank. So it's no different. If you want to change in your life, you're going to have to change what you're doing going forward. I like that you mentioned the amounts that it was 20 million of capital he needed in escrow. That's not small no. pennies. And no. if you think about how long it would take you at your current savings rate to get up to 20 million, that's a lot of capital. Then 10 years. I mean, that's a long time to think about capitalizing a bank so that you have the capability then to finance like a bank does. And if we can even just scale that down to an individual level, we still need to store up capital and there's still a time frame required in order to capitalize and be in a position to be able to secure that need for capital and financing. And I love that Infinite Banking does financing and savings all at the same time. And, and provides protection. Absolutely. And, and, I, I think, and I think that's what we're going to talk about right now. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Yeah, so it can be easy when you start thinking about infinite banking to think, well, I'm saving cash. I'm building up savings. I can access and use this capital. And this is my war chest. It's my reserve. It's my emergency and opportunity fund. And those are all terms that we can use to label the cash value because this is cash in the policy that we can access and use during our lifetime. And certainly when you think about infinite banking, that may be the first thing on your mind. How do I store capital, capitalize, and then take care of my need for financing and take care of my need for savings? However, what's even more important is to be in a position of thinking about what happens when you transition out of this earth, off of this planet, and what is going to live on past you? How are you going to create the most capital at the end of your life so that everything is going to be better up until that point? And how do you think about a legacy or leaving something behind? And so life insurance tremendously does this very, very well. And it can almost be something that is thought of as a side effect or a side 
um, benefit, a fringe benefit of infinite banking, if you will. But really, it's one of the most important pieces. We're going to talk about why in just a second, but that is through the death benefit. So today, we're going to start the conversation by talking about what is the death benefit and really come from that angle of looking at life insurance and how this works. So Bruce, again, I think we should um, give maybe a one sentence. I'm going to try the one sentence answer for what is the death benefit. And then let's really unpack what it is, how it works and why it matters. So the death benefit of a life insurance policy, and specifically in this case of an infinite banking life insurance policy, which again, if you remember, is a high cash value, dividend paying, whole life insurance policy with a mutual company. So the death benefit of that is the amount that's guaranteed to be paid out to your listed beneficiary at your death. So that's the simple definition. So what does that do and what does that mean? Bruce, I'll let you um, jump in here. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's simple. I think people grasp that, that I'm paying an organization and they've calculated actuarially by using my, my uh, gender, my health, and my habits to determine how much death benefit they can give you and still they also could be profitable. Now, a lot of different things come into that. One is, and we're going to go, we're going to talk about this in just a bit, but in order for them to be sustained themselves, they have to be profitable. And I, I just had this discussion with a client just a couple of days ago because they wanted to know how the index worked on the life insurance or what was it for. And it, the index is a way to compare one insurance company to the other as far as the cost of the insurance because whole life bakes in all the costs of the insurance, the running the company, um, the customer service, the buildings and all that into the total cost. Where if you just bought, if you just buy term insurance, they're going to give you the exact term um, and they're going to give you the exact cost for that term of that insurance, how long it's going to be. But with whole life, they don't do that because everything is baked into it. So, so they give an index to kind of compare one company to another. And um, I said, well, think of it like this. Um, oh, they were bothered by the fact that, that, that there was a guaranteed and then there was a maximum. And I said, well, you want an insurance company to be able to, and this is very relevant in, in April of 2022, when inflation is rampant right now, you want an insurance company to be able to raise their cost of insurance in order to stay viable so that they do not go under and then they can't pay the death benefit or they can't pay your cash value. You want them to be able to do that. As similarly as right now in inflation, you want businesses to be able to raise their prices so that they can stay in business so that the ones that are valuable are then going to continue their service to the community and to the individuals. And so they have figured out, okay, if you give us X amount of dollars, we're going to give you X amount of death benefit. And there's a couple of other things that, that they factored in on this. One is obviously they need to be competitive with other 
with other uh, insurance companies. So that's just macroeconomics. The other thing is, is that they need, <clears throat> excuse me, they, they have also figured out how to add other services on so that even if it is a little more expensive than another co uh, company, they can say, well, we're, we're bringing you additional value to this particular product. One of the, one of the um, things that recently a lot of the companies have been adding is they can't call it long-term care, but they call it chronic illness mm -hmm. rider that they add at no cost. <laughs> and I always tell clients, I said, now, re now really, is it really no cost? It's just that it's no additional cost. Right. Everything that, that says no cost. Up. Yes. Right. There's, there's somehow they're covering the cost of providing this. Right. It's like 0% financing when you buy a car. You know, that was another thing Nelson used to drive him crazy. It's like, well, why should I take a loan against my policy at 5% to buy a car when I can get it at 0% financing at the dealership? And Nelson would say, you really think that they're giving you 0% financing? Don't you feel manipulated? And I would agree. You should feel manipulated because they're not taking that hit in that situation. So they're also the cash value has multiple components, profitability. It also has um, the component of the other features of a particular other particular policy, and you have to figure out what is the best for you and your family. So, Bruce, let's unpack some of this because there's a lot behind all of that. So, with the death benefit being able to be something that, if you're purchasing life insurance by the term life insurance, you know that you're buying something that will pay out to your beneficiaries. The reason I said it has to be whole life insurance in order to have a guaranteed death benefit is that you're in a position where you know when you have whole life insurance that the death benefit will pay out at whatever point you die between now and the end of that policy. And if you are still living at the end of the policy, I say if you've defied all of the odds of human life expectancy and you are outliving everyone and just wowing all of the medical experts and all of the actuaries and your entire um, cohort or generation, if you're in that position, the death benefit will pay out to you while you're living in a whole life policy. So that's the end point of the life insurance policy. Now, that's not the case with the term policy because term life insurance is only available for that term. Say it's a 20-year term policy. If I die within that 20-year span, then I'm paid out the death benefit. If I keep that 20 years in force and decide to renew again, for one year after the 20 years, and now I'm in the 21st year of the policy and I die during that, that time that I have the coverage enforced, it will still pay out at that point. But if at any point I drop the coverage, stop paying the premium, I am no longer going to be receiving that death benefit in a term policy. And then Bruce, if we're in a position of index universal or universal life or variable universal, you have a bunch of different um, types of life insurance in between the whole life and the term life insurance, why can we not say there's a guaranteed death benefit with those types of policies? Well, in fact, it matters in their contract, they're going to say there's a guaranteed benefit, but they're going to take it a little further. They're going to say there is a guaranteed death benefit if you can continue to pay the premiums, but those premium amounts are not guaranteed. 
where in whole life, the base and the term are guaranteed. When I said they can raise the death or excuse me, the premiums, it's for the PUA riders, which are optional. So think of index universal life or all the universal life policies. Think of them as being um, optional payments, just like a PUA. And they are because they're underfunded. They will, they will actually say to you, well, here's the minimum amount you can put in, just like a base policy with whole life. So they're going to say that the death benefit is guaranteed as long as you can make all these payments, and those, but those payments are not guaranteed. So, so that meaning, gets very confusing. Yes, because we've that had, is. We've had, we've had comments on our YouTube channel before where people said, you guys are wrong. I have guarantees in my universal life. And, and I, I would say, well, it depends upon your definition of guaranteed. You do. You have guaranteed you know, death benefit in your universal life, but it's dependent upon your ability to make increasing payments into your universal life. And the challenge as well with any of the universal varieties of life insurance is that if your premium is not guaranteed, that means the premium could rise. So you're talking about that piece, but there also can be this misconception that I have a lot of flexibility in terms of how I fund that universal or variable or indexed universal life policy. And the problem with that perception of I can pay up to what's illustrated, or I can pay a lot less if I want to. Sure, you can do that. But Bruce, how does that impact the guarantees of the death benefit? Well, let's just think about this for one second. And I'm going to, let's just use the logic for one second. Whole life was the original, was the original insurance. And then when interest rates started to rise and the, the business divisions of these different insurance companies said, hey, you know, we could design a product that we can show people that we're going to minimally fund this thing. And then the interest, is, the interest rates that you're earning are going to keep this thing going. That was universal life. Oh, by the way now, oh shoot, the interest rates actually dropped. So now these things aren't working. Oh, well, we got a better product now. We got variable universal life. So variable universal life, when interest rates were dropping, the stock market was going up. So now we're going to design a product that is funded minimally, and it's going to actually buy different mutual funds within the product. And now we got it solved. Now, we, now you're never going to have to worry about it again. You just have to put a little bit of, of capital in here, and the stocks are going to grow all the time, and they're going to, f- to pay for your, your death benefit. Well, then the stock market actually did not do well in 87, 2001, we had a dot-com crash and all throughout, and then we had the great recession. And then all throughout the 2000s, we had what we called the lost decade where actually um, the indexes did not rise or if they rose, it was less than a half percent. So then they said, oh, we have a new product. This will solve all our problems. It's called index universal life. And you can never lose any money in your account, which is also not which is true according to the index you can never lose, but you can have 
you can act, your account can actually go down with increased um, charges within your account to buy the options. So now let's just go back. So whole life, which is, has been around for, it's, uh, our, I think our, our longest company we work with is 178 years. And it still has sustained, sustained itself that entire time. And every time the industry tries to bring in new products, they've had to bring in another product because the product before it just does, isn't working the way they thought it was working. Now, how does this impact the death benefit? I had to tell you all that to, to, to tell you this. What we have found th through our experience is that people don't understand that the other products have taken the risk off the insurance company and place it into the individual. They are responsible to make sure that the contract continues by in a universal life, making up for the lack of interest rates in a variable universal life, making up for the losses in the stock market in the index universal life, making up for the losses I shouldn't say losses for the lack of gains in the, in the index. And then what they have to do is either put more capital in it to maintain the death benefit or in, in extreme cases, and these extreme cases actually happen. All you have to do is Google Universal Life, Wall Street Journal, and you're going to see the report that they did coming out of the state of New York on universal life. And once again, universal life has its place. I'm not trying to say it, but it does impact the death benefit because people then say, well, I can't afford these premiums anymore. So you then lose the death benefit. So all those things have to be taken into consideration when you're trying to figure out how you are going to place the best pr protection in for your family and some are some are temporary like in term life which we'd like to get up to the human human life value and some are in a more permanent situation which we would consider the 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 one permanent policy that does not um you do not have to worry about changing is the whole life insurance product the other ones you actually they're only permanent is if you can can put in more uh, capital into those particular products when needed. I think, Bruce, that was a really helpful way of thinking through the evolution of life insurance policies. And I should say the evolution of various uh, new products of life insurance. And the challenge is that, I mean, if you just step back and look at that whole picture, we have original product that has always worked and still works. We have a modification that had challenges. So we changed the modification to a new modification, which had challenges and a new modification, which also had challenges. All of which, if I lump together all of the types of life insurance that are not whole life and not term life insurance. So all of the middle uh, amalgamation of all of the different types of options you have there. The one thing that concerns me personally, why I don't prefer those products for myself is that there is not that fundamental guarantee that if I fund this policy the way I planned to fund it in the beginning, 
I will have this guaranteed death benefit the way that I have been provided on an initial illustration. I like to know that I'm overfunding a policy because I know that I'm putting money into something that is going to work and I know how much is going to be paid out. I love that because that type of certainty can give me a lot of peace of mind to know what else I can do with that capital and what else I can do with other cash in my life because of those guarantees. If I remove the guarantees, it feels a lot uh, less stable of a foundation yeah. in yeah. my life. Yeah, Nelson used to always say, hey, I don't have a, t a problem with you investing, but if you're gonna save and, and protect, save and protect. And if you're gonna invest, invest, but don't mix the two. And I thought that was that's that comes from from wisdom. Unfortunately, now there's a company out there, at least one that I know of. I've heard another one starting it that are trying to now hybrid um, index universal life with whole life, so that the base the base death benefit and a term rider are just like the whole life. But if you want to get additional crediting to the account, then you're in an index and you can choose the dividend option or you can choose the indexing credited option of the mm -hmm. two. So that's another way. You know, insurance companies are just like, or just like any other company. Entrepreneurial, they're, yes. Yeah, they're entrepreneurial. They're going to try to figure out what the people want, where, where they've gotten a bad rap. And frankly, this is, this, the consumer needs to take some responsible some some responsibility for this because I joke around all the time. Now, an illustration is not a contract, mm -hmm. but when you get an illustration of a whole life contract and you get an illustration of an index universal life contract or a variable universal life contract, the in um, I'm sorry illustration, the whole life illustration will be anywhere between fourteen and twenty pages. And the index universal life or any universal life policy, uh, illustration will be between 40 to 60 pages long. And the reason they're that much longer is because they're actually telling you, hey, we're not taking responsibility for this. You're taking responsibility. And we've outlined all those things in here, why you're taking responsibility. And you have to know that before you actually put this in place. And oh, by the way, you sign that you know it. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't understand all the language. That's exactly right. But then when, when it doesn't go the way people thought it was going to go, then they say, well, the, this is terrible insurance. This, they, they tricked me. They did this. And, and I'm not in everybody's shoes, but I'm saying you got to take responsibility. If, if, if you didn't read the, the illustration or you didn't read the contract, then you have to take some responsibility of the outcome. Mm -hmm. you know, down the road. And all, like I said, all you have to do is look at the two and that's just the illustrations. That's not the actual contracts. The contracts get bigger on the whole life side, but they get a lot bigger on the universal life side uh, also, because they have to say, Hey, you're responsible for this. We're not. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why we are so passionate about providing education that gives you all the facts about life insurance, because ultimately you do have to take responsibility. 
even for whole life, even for any decisions you make, even if you're just putting money into a bank account or you're storing cash or gold and silver or whatever you're choosing in your financial life, ultimately the buck stops with you. I mean, you are the one who's responsible for the outcomes you produce, even if you didn't understand the risk, or even if you were sold by somebody who was a great salesperson and they made something sound too wonderful and too good to be true. Ultimately, the the burden of responsibility falls on you. And so our goal is to make that a little bit lighter, a little bit easier, and to really give you all of the information that you need and knowledge and the wisdom that you need to be able to navigate this world of trying to figure out what in the world to do to make the best decisions. Because I promise you, there is a lot of noise and we realize that. We realize that there's a lot of voices that will tell you, do this with your money. Well, maybe that's in that that organization's best interest or that industry's best interest. Pay off all your debt. Um, make sure that you have the the lowest, the shortest mortgages possible. Make sure that you invest in this 401k. Make sure you have an IRA, a self-directed IRA. Go with this company, go with that company, buy this stock, buy Bitcoin. There's so many things that are diverting your attention. And if you're just beholden to those messages, you can be pulled in a thousand directions and have no principled system for how you make decisions financially, knowing that you're making the best choices. And so that's our goal in providing this type of um, content for you because we care about you having the tools to make decisions. And I love um, that Nelson specifically said invest or have, what did he say? Protect and um, advance. Save and protect. Save and protect or invest. And I've heard that before. I didn't remember those specific words, but I think about here is my investing. If I'm investing, I'm taking on some kind of risk. I have to accept the risk. I have to know what the risk is. I have to believe that I have knowledge so that I can invest well. And if I'm investing in my business or I'm investing by using a particular marketing strategy in my business, or I'm um, investing in a particular kind of real estate, I need to have the right knowledge to make good decisions, have an exit strategy, have an out, know when I can pull my money out, if it's liquid or not. I have to have knowledge and I have to have control. If I'm saving, if I'm saving and protecting, I think about that as a completely different silo or category of my money. Specifically, because this comes back to a way that I learned about money from Circle of Wealth that has two different colors of tanks. And literally there is a yellow tank for your risk money. If there's a potential for loss, it's risk. It's an investment. If there is the guarantee that your money is going to stay there, if you put it there, now we're not talking about inflation, but if you put the money in, it's not going to evaporate tomorrow and turn into less money. That's saving. And yes, whole life insurance and infinite banking is excellent for saving it's not an investment. That's why it drives me crazy when people say it's a terrible investment. It's not an investment at all. You're not putting dollars at risk. You're just looking for a powerful way to save. And in the circle of wealth model, that's a green tank with a lid on top that shows if I put dollars in here, they're not going to turn into less dollars tomorrow. And so keeping those completely separate in the products that I use is really helpful. The other thing that I wanted to share here is that yes, it is simple but there are pieces to understand to know what you're doing with your money when you buy whole life insurance. And you can buy that from anyone. You can step into a conversation and just walk through the process of getting the life insurance, but really it's best to really understand what you're buying and how you can use it to the best of your ability. 
So Bruce, there was so much that you shared way back at the beginning. So I wanted to unpack a few things. You had mentioned as well that um, insurance companies are working to be competitive and offering additional services. And you specifically mentioned a chronic illness rider. Um, that is something that life insurance companies then would offer on their death benefit, a way to access and use the death benefit that shows at no additional cost, but it's a way to use the death benefit, which in this case, the critical illness rider is something that certain life insurance companies have, meaning if you do have a critical illness, you can access the death benefit early and use that, not just use the cash value, but in certain circumstances, you can use the death benefit while you're still living. Yeah, let's just make sure it's chronic illness yes, okay. and terminal illness. We didn't even talk about terminal illness. Um, Go ahead. I guess, I guess you could call chronic or uh, critical illness is like terminal illness. So another I one of the, the wrong word, sorry. Yeah, one of, one of the, another one of the writers is terminal illness. So if you can get certified that you're going to die from a physician in the next 12 months, most of the current companies actually have that built in to their pricing so that you can actually get your death benefit, a portion of your, a portion of your death benefit be, uh, right away so that you can, I call it kick the bucket rider, you know, so um, you're going to kick the bucket. So then you're going to use your kick the bucket rider to do your bucket list before you die. That's a memorable uh, <laughs> way. I don't think anyone's going to forget that. I do want to point yeah. out really quick. I know what you meant, but you said if you're certified to die from a physician, he meant if you're certified by a physician that you will die, not that you're going to die right. at the hands of a physician. <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, if you're good, yeah, if you can be certified that you are going to die within the last or the next twelve months, you can it's get a portion months, of your death your your death benefit. So those are two riders that, um, and of course, then you know I I don't know why I always have to say this, but I'm always amazed how people don't realize that loans taken against your cash value are also your, your, your death benefit is used to collateralize those loans. In other words, whatever you take as a loan plus the interest, your death benefit reduces by that much so that upon your death, your, your family will get the net death benefit after the loans. Well, it will be the same thing with the chronic illness rider and also the terminal illness rider whatever you take now you don't have to take the whole thing like they may give you you know 50 percent of your death benefit you don't have to take it all right now you can just say no just give me 10 percent or 15 percent or whatever that percentage is but but it's they're going to adjust your death benefit at the time of death from what you've already taken it seems to me that seems logical but a lot of people uh, don't understand that. They can't figure out why I don't get my death benefit and those chronic illness. illness. Now they could, we've, we've said this on the last show, they could do that, but then they'd, the pricing would be a lot greater. And they found that people don't want to pay the extra price for it. Right. So I think that was really valuable to point out that basically when you use the terminal illness or the chronic illness rider, I mean, you could essentially think of it as you're using up a portion of the death benefit mm -hmm. ahead of time. So it, that means right. it's not also available to pay out at your death. But I would like to ask you, when you use or take advantage of one of those riders, does that act as a loan? 
or does it act as a withdrawal? Do you or or neither? Um, it, it it's neither. It's a okay. it's a it's a it's literally the uh, a return of not return but an advance of the death benefit. Okay. Um, because they so there's no interest I, on it. There's no there 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 are they've calculated in their actuarial processes to say we know people are going to die when they get a chronic illness and a chronic illness is defined by that you cannot do two of the daily habits of living which includes eating locomotion bathing dressing yourself um, so on and so forth if you cannot do two of those they know those people are going to die within a short period of time anyway same way with the terminal illness so they are just they're just giving you the death benefit a little bit ahead of time, which they know they're going to have to give it later on anyway. And they fi- figure that into their calculations. So how, and I don't want to get too much on a bunny trail. I want to say two things about this before we move on. You can't, we can't call this a long-term care rider because long-term care would do something different. And this would be if, if you in your later years needed to go into a facility or uh, not an institution, I don't think it's called that, but a facility somewhere um, at the end of your life, long-term care insurance, completely separate product altogether, would pay for that cost of residing in that facility. How could, how does the chronic illness or the terminal illness, how does it relate to but not equal long-term care? Well, you can, it's, it's, just, it's just for the um, regulatory reasons. It, you can use it for the same thing. Um, but with long-term care, they're going to have within the, the contracts escalators that they could put for the premium. They're going to put, they're going to put certain stipulations as far as when you can first start it. It's called an elimination period. It can be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 120 days, 180 days before you can actually start it, where none of that is actually in these riders. So you can't you then therefore you can't call it a long-term care rider. They actually call it a chronic illness rider. Mm. So you can use it for the same thing, but you know that the prices are set where the, where the long-term care, I mean, people are experiencing 25, 28% increase in premiums from these because from the long-term care, from the long-term care policies, because they were, they were designed a long time ago and people are living longer and it's much more expensive than they anticipated. So within the contracts, it says we are allowed to increase premiums by so much per year. I did not realize that. Oh yeah. It's in the, it's in the contract. Mm-hmm. And once again, we, we tell people you want, you know, you would like companies to be able to do that because if they can't do it, then they're just going to go out of business. Then you're going to be, you're going to be standing there with a piece of paper. That means nothing. Mm-hmm. At least you can get something. What, what I've had with our long-term care people that have seen these increases is you, what, what else you can do is instead of saying, okay, I'm, I'm paying for $60,000 of coverage a year, um, but now I have to pay 25% more for that coverage. Well, what you can do is actually lower the coverage to maybe $40,000 a year and keep your premiums the same. So there's a, there's a variety of things that you can do. It's, it's very similar to 
what we do, what we can do in, in life insurance policies, whether they're universal life or whole life, was we can do something called a, re, a reduced paid up. And this is related to death benefit that we're talking about today. You can, at any time during the contract, if you do not want to, which I don't know why you wouldn't, wouldn't want to, or you, you cannot pay additional premium, you can exercise within the contract something called a reduced paid up. And they simply will look at your death benefit at that time, look at your cash value, and, and the actuaries will figure, well, you don't want to put any more money into this, so we're going to reduce the death benefit so that it's paid up by the amount of cash value that you have at that time period. So it's another way that the death benefit, by your choice, can be reduced because you do not choose to put any more premium into the contract. I like that you pointed that out. It provides an option for somebody if you do not choose, and I like how you use that word, if you don't choose to continue paying the premium. Um, it also affects the amount of death benefit, which is a reason why many people decide that they don't want to reduce pay up when they realize the reduction of the death benefit. Because as you get closer to needing the death benefit, that death benefit amount becomes much more valuable to you. Yeah, I was I, that, and that's how I kind of wanted to close my thoughts today, Rachel. Okay. Is you know, I've been doing this in one form or another since the late '80s, and how many times we actually started as a uh, selling whole life, and we still we we this is still a, a factor today, but we started selling whole life as a tax free retirement program, and people didn't worry about the death benefit because they, all they were worried about was that tax-free income. Mm. Those same people now that are looking at their lives and they, and they see this, they're thinking, man, I wish I would have got a lot more death benefit because that's 30 years ago. Um, well, it's more than 30 years ago, 35 years ago. So people were actually saying, well, I thought $100,000 was going to be great to leave to my heirs, but boy, that, that, that's not very much money. And we see this today, you know, people will call us and the money advantage and say, I want to do a high cash value. I don't care what the death benefit is. I don't care. And that's because they don't see their mortality. COVID changed that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we recently, we recently had a dentist call the sh- call us up and we reviewed and he's 76 years old and he's struggling with the fact that he has a universal life policy that the premiums are going up and he also has term life that the premiums are escalating terribly Mm. and this is a common theme as we get older and closer to our mortality suddenly the death benefit is very very important and the last thing i'd like to say is it's our perception of the amount of capital when I was growing up in the 70s, I didn't even know there was $100,000 or, or a, a number that went to $100,000. I know people are probably laughing about that right now it's because we throw around a trillion dollars now like it's nothing. But back then, you, you never even really thought about $100,000. Well, then if you had a death benefit, then in the 80s of $100,000, that was a huge death benefit. Mm-hmm. Now we have people that come into our organization and want, it's, want some advice and they'll say, 
oh, well, I have $800,000 of death benefit. That's more than enough for my family. Then you start doing the calculations and you say, well, what are you trying to do with that 800000 Well, if I die, I want them to use that. And I say, well, how much are you making? Well, I make $200,000 a year. Well, <laughs> that's only four years if you eat the yeah. principal. Four years. Yeah. And now, and that is, now we're not taking into consideration taxes and you have to do that. But, but if you want to go further than four years, now you have to invest this. Mm-hmm. And if you, let's just use 5%, you get 5%, which there's a lot of people that are saying that that's not a good number to use, but let's just say 5%. Now the 800,000 is kicking off $40,000 of income replacement. That's not 200,000. And by the way, when it kicks off that investment income, you have to pay taxes on it. So this is something that people have to start thinking about how their thinking changes as they get older and older down the road, just like I realized that now, you know, I blink at $100,000 now because, mm-hmm. you know, we just, we just went over $30 trillion of debt here in the United States. And I, I'm not, not going to do it, but I would just challenge somebody to take $100,000 and divide it by $30 trillion and see how small that number is compared to $30 trillion. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. You know, Bruce, I know you said you were wrapping. Uh, I have another kind of big oh. thought that I wanted to add here. So um, we're the, I'm going to make your clothes a false close and we're going to, um, I just have one more piece that I want to add in. So there's an idea as well that human life value, I would encourage you to go to a website. I need to check if it's still active just because it's been a while since I went here. Go to lifehappens.org. Yep. It looks like it's still available. And do a calculation here. Go to the calculators and calculate your human life value. Just a very simple calculation. And um, there's actually two different calculators. The one that is your life insurance. No, I think it's the human life value one. So it, it, it will show you a factor of your income, your age, and your years until retirement, and your assets, and give you a an approximation of your human life value. Now, this term is something that attorneys use in a wrongful death claim, meaning somebody is killed um, involuntarily and the, the person committing that act, whether it was a car accident or something like that, is now responsible to pay the family of the deceased Mm-hmm. this much money to replace what the monetary value of their life was in terms of how much income they would have brought in during their lifespan. I guarantee you that your human life economic value, the dollar value that a life insurance company would insure you up to, which is basically the same number, is much higher than you've probably contemplated your need for life insurance. And that is a really good exercise to see what your human life value is, which then tells you what the insurance company would insure you for, which then also tells you what they financially believe that you're worth because they're not going to over-insure you. So all of that to be said, if you're looking at infinite banking and you supplement your human life value with term insurance, you could be saying, well, what if my death benefit stays flat on my life insurance, my whole life policy, and then at 20 years, my term policy is gone, 
I'm going to lose all this death benefit. What I want to encourage you is that we're going to talk about this in a future episode, but as you have dividends paid into your life insurance policy, you have options with those dividends. And if you use the dividend to purchase more paid up additions inside of your whole life policy, that will add to your death benefit, which will continue to increase in face amount over time, meaning that you're going to have a growth of your death benefit inside of your policy. So if you started your whole life policy, say at $400,000 of death benefit, you are going to have that continue to grow over time where the longer and longer you're living with that policy in force, the more the death benefit payout will be. Now, certainly there's going to be factors that influence this. If you choose to reduce pay up or if you um, stop funding at a certain point of time, or you don't pay your full paid up additions, there's going to be differences in how that policy ends up performing than what show up on the initial illustration. But what I would encourage you to realize is that having a death benefit is tremendously uh, peace of mind bringing as well. I mentioned earlier, just having a guaranteed dollar amount that I know will be paid out to take care of my kids. What gives me a lot of peace of mind is in a, a whole life policy, I know that I'm going to be transferring this to them and I know that they're going to be using it for good. I'm giving them direction to be able to know what to do with capital whenever it comes into their hands. And hopefully it's going to be 70, 80 years from now. But whenever it is along that continuum of my life, I know that mortality is something that we all are going to face. I almost had the gift of facing my mortality early with a near-death experience about three years ago. And I call it a gift because it allowed me to look at the economic value of my life and recognize how powerful we all are to be able to leave something to the people who outlast us. And if I focus on having as much as possible at the end, to leave past me, I'm going to be creating a lot more in my life along the way. So Bruce, I know I threw out a bunch of ideas there. Is there anything else that you'd like to comment about that, especially with the the rising death benefit? Well, um, just a little bit. I mean, I, I espouse that if people want to help their children, um, in a retirement situation, which I don't necessarily think that they they should retire, but if if they want to help retire, then they ought to allow their children to take out life insurance on them. Mm-hmm. And I've only gotten a few people to actually actually do this because one of the one of the statements by either the child or the parent a lot of times is, "Oh, I don't know. That sounds weird. That sounds creepy. It's like I be, would be." I would be rooting for my parents to die. And I think you're going through this with your program right now. And the fact that, well, if you're rooting for your parents to die, then there's something wrong with the relationship. Oh yeah. But there's also something that what they don't realize, what you just said is I have a policy of my father Mm -hmm. and I'm rooting for him to live because the longer he lives, the, the higher the death benefit is because every year the dividends go by more paid up additions. And so I'm actually rooting for him to live. I joke around. I'm like, what are you eating over there? You know, uh, let's eat, let's eat healthier there. Let's go exercise. Let's go do That's this. That's awesome. You know, <laughs> and how old is your dad, Bruce? My dad will be 83 in a couple months. 
So I oh. just bring that up because a lot of times people say, oh, I'm too old to start a life insurance policy. And Bruce, when did you start that policy on him? Uh, 71. He was 71? He was 71, yes. So clearly it was economically a good decision for you. And you're still saying live as long as possible. So yeah, keep it up. Yeah. Keep it up, Bruce's yeah. dad. The other thing, uh, 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 just a, a quick tidbit is, you know, I've talked to a life insurance executive before about this whole thing about I don't want to overinsure, which you 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 brought up, and the response by the life insurance uh, executive was, "We do not create estates; we just protect estates." Mm-hmm. In other words, it's impossible to be overinsured because we won't overinsure you. You might think you're worth more dead than you are alive. But we can prove it to you mathematically that you're not worth more dead than you are alive. Once again, that's probably a relational thing that people think about. Like, I don't want, I don't want my wife to think uh, she's going to be better off if I'm dead. Well, there's probably other things in your life you need to reflect upon if that's the case. <laughs> that's about thinking about your thinking, raising your level of consciousness. Yes. Um, there's nothing that will ever replace an actual human in this world. And money certainly will never be or amount to as much as you are. But there's something so profound about creating money through peaceful trade and the right economics of providing value to others. Money is good. And being able to have money during your life and use it well and give as much as possible to your children is profound and beautiful. So that's our real close. Um, Bruce, thank you for continuing on this discussion with me today. I am really excited that we covered so much ground, even though we were just talking about the death benefit. So if this has been valuable to you, or if you have further questions, please ask them. You can email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. You can drop a comment below this video, wherever you're watching it, or you can also, um, subscribe. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And we would love to answer your questions. I forgot to mention, you also can book an appointment with our advisors. And that gives you the opportunity to really dig into your personal economic situation and say, here's what I would like to accomplish. What's possible for me in this world of infinite banking? Or you might just be saying, how do I maximize my money and do the most with what I have? So we would love to have that conversation with you and be part of your journey of creating the best possible financial future for yourself and your family. You can do that by going over to themoneyadvantage.com. Thank you so much. And we are thankful that you're listening. We thank you that you're in our tribe. We appreciate your comments, your feedback, your questions. Keep them coming as we continue to provide information that helps you make decisions better. So Bruce, anything else before I close out? Nope. All right. In closing, remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking Put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. 
If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.